I want to begin by mentioning a word. Discipleship. Discipleship. There are many fallacies about discipleship within the church at large today. And some in the room are familiar with them. See if any of these sound familiar. Discipleship is a complex process that only the spiritually mature are able to participate in. Here's another one. Discipleship requires higher education, formal training, or at least a Bible degree. Discipleship requires a special giftedness to teach others. Discipleship means that I can only disciple someone if someone pursues me for discipleship. Discipleship can only take place with someone older discipling someone younger. Discipleship involves programs and is a formal process. Discipleship requires tons of free time in order to participate. Lastly, discipleship is an abstract concept which cannot clearly be defined. I must confess that I've heard many of these before, and I'm I'm sure that I'm not alone in the room. And the irony is that the Lord Jesus Christ has commissioned every believer within the church to make disciples. So I find it hard to believe that discipleship is something that would be shrouded in mystery. The truth is, it isn't. It isn't. The ministry theme of discipleship is rich throughout the gospel of Mark. And as I shared before, one of the ways that I pray that Mark really blesses our church is that we would have a desire to become more like Christ and that that would be real and properly understood. Jesus is the master disciple maker. All we must do is look to and understand Christ's call to discipleship, which our passage today will help us to understand. Do you want to have a firm grasp on what it means to be called as a disciple of Christ? If you do, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 16 through 20, which will be the focus of our study. Let's see what we can glean from our master, starting in chapter 1, verse 16. It says this, As he, Jesus, was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea. They were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets followed him. Going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. They went away to follow him. The Lord Jesus Christ serves as our ultimate example in life and in ministry. He models humility, service to others, living a life of sacrifice and devotion to the Father's will. He models righteousness, courage, and compassion as he ministers to those who are suffering. He's also our model of prayer, of living the spirit-filled and spirit-led life. He's our model in resisting temptation, as we saw just a few Sundays ago. When you went out into the wilderness to defeat Satan, the scriptures are purposed in teaching us to follow Jesus and specifically purposed in teaching us to follow his example. Husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. We're also called to follow the example of Christ when it comes to our patience and our long-suffering. Just as 1 Peter 1.21 says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. The Lord Jesus Christ serves as the supreme example in everything, and this also includes making disciples. The title of our message is Fishing for Fishermen, a Christ call to discipleship. Our passage reveals three actions 
in Christ's call to discipleship to make you and I more effective disciple makers. And it's my hope today as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, as we also zero in on this passage, that a number of fallacies that are associated with discipleship, that those will be confronted. We'll be able to see defining principles of application that God has for us. The first defining action that our passage reveals is in your notes, and it says this, Jesus pursues his disciples. And it starts with his pursuit of Simon and Andrew. Look at verse 16. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea. They were fishermen. And Jesus is intentional in his pursuit. He is fishing for fishermen. Last week we mentioned that there's really nothing significant about the region of Galilee. And there were a lot of Jewish settlers who had settled there. And part of the reason for that was was that there was a very fertile ground and it produced fruit and produce 10 months out of the year. My wife, you, you would love to live we're big fruit and produce people, so it'd be a great, great place to live. Well, also within the region, there was this massive lake, which was about 13 miles long, seven miles wide. And so, because of its mere size, it earned the name the Sea Galilee. In the first century, fishing was a thriving industry. During this time period, there were over a dozen ports on the Sea of Galilee and several towns on the northwest shore. And fish, not red meat, not chicken, poultry, fish was the staple food of the Greco-Roman world. And evidence of this can be seen in feeding of the 5,000, for example. What did the disciples have to eat? Just a couple barley loaves and a, and a couple fish, right? That was the staple food. Fish from the Sea of Galilee was exported and prized in surrounding regions, even as far as Alexandria and Egypt and Antioch and Syria. So Jesus picked a great fishing spot to fish for disciples. And we can safely assume that he was preaching the gospel as he went, as we learned in our, our message from the previous verses last Sunday. In the Greek, Jesus preaching the gospel of God is actually in the present tense. And so what this means is that there was, this was a a habitual or an ongoing action of his ministry. Jesus is preaching the gospel of God and he's looking for men that he is going to help become disciple makers. One principle that we can learn from Jesus's pursuit of his disciples that we can apply to our walks immediately is that we should be looking to make disciples. If Jesus pursued his disciples, then perhaps we should pursue ours. Seems pretty straightforward, I know. So often we hear about the need within the church for people to pursue discipleship that I think that we lose sight of the fact that each one of us is commanded to make discipleship happen by pursuing and investing in the lives of other believers. So to some degree, I believe that the church has it backwards. We understand that discipleship works both ways. Actually, uh, there's four ways, and you can see it on our sign right over there, Cornerstone Bible Church, Disciples for Life, that there is an aspect of us being discipled, right? But as it relates to making disciples, right, all, all four of those are involved. There's a, there's a lateral aspect in peer discipleship relationships. And then there's this outpouring, uh, which we're going to talk about during this message, of how we invest what we're learning and, and, and our lives, really, into lives of other people. There needs to be what I would call a paradigm shift in our thinking. It's not just about being discipled. But it's about making disciples, and we'll share more about this when we talk about the goal of Christ's discipleship under our next point. There needs to be an active, engaging aspect, not only where we're trying to reach unbelievers for the gospel, but that we're also challenging converted hearts to grow. Amen? That we're, 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 we're not content with where we're at. We're not. 
There has to be a paradigm shift, I believe, in our thinking. One commentator um, was speaking about the fishermen that Jesus identified, Simon and Andrew. uh, Actually, James and John, all four are fishermen. These four disciples are first of the 12 that Jesus calls. And perhaps you've heard them described simply as ordinary men. But they were, they were really capable men. And I got ahead of myself. One commentator shared the fact that fishermen in Galilee competing in the larger Mediterranean market, it testifies to their skill, prosperity, and ingenuity, and probably to their command of Greek, which was the international language of business and culture. I share this insight because so often we have heard that the 12 were just ordinary men, and though this is technically true, even Dr. MacArthur would agree that description can minimize the fact that they were very capable, they were skilled, they were hardworking and effective communicators because of their background. And I mentioned Dr. MacArthur specifically because he wrote the book that many are familiar with called 12 Ordinary Men. Show of hands, has anyone read the book, 12 Ordinary Men? Yeah, I figured a, a, a few have. And it emphasizes the fact that these men were capable and they were diverse and they were able to connect with both Jews and Gentiles. And here's a brief description of each of these four. Simon, also known as Simon Barjona, Simon Peter is described as the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth. It was very common for Peter to speak first and to think second. And the Lord often had to rebuke him as a result. But we can be certain that the Lord also saw potential and teachability in Peter that would be vital to making other men disciples of Christ. Andrew, also known as Peter's brother, is described as the apostle of small things. And he often lived in the background, or some might even say in Peter's shadow. This was especially true for me growing up. I had a twin brother. And I was born first, and I was definitely the more dominant one. And so whenever we would go to a park or we'd go to the pool or something and we'd meet other friends, I would be the talker. I'd say, hi, I'm John, and this is my twin brother, Jay. He never even opened his mouth. Maybe you grew up in a dynamic like that, even within your family. You had somebody who, who spoke on your behalf. Well, Andrew was the first of all the disciples to be called, and he was often the means used to introduce others to the Lord. And in the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, in verses 35 through 40, we learn that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. And here is what it says. If you want to flip there real quick. John chapter 1, verses 35 and 40. And we're going to actually refer to this passage as a later point, under our third point in the sermon, to see something that's essential for us to see. Starting in verse 35, it says this. On the next day, John the Baptist standing with two of his disciples and he looked at jesus as he walked and said behold the lamb of god the two disciples heard him speak and they followed jesus and jesus turned to them saw them following and said to them what do you seek and they said to him rabbi which translated means teacher where are you staying And he said to them, come and you will see. And so they came and they saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. And one of the two who had heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. John MacArthur says this about Andrew. His eagerness to follow Christ, combined with his zeal for introducing others to him, fairly typifies Andrew's character, end quote. So without question, the Lord saw potential in Andrew when he pursued him. James and John, also known as the sons of Zebedee and later on as the sons of Thunder, each were known for special qualities as well. James is also uh, referred to as, not also, is specifically referred to as the the apostle of passion. And it's interesting because the only time that he's mentioned by himself is actually in the book of Acts where it's a reference to his martyrdom. If there's a key word that applies to his life, it is the word passion. 
We know little about him. It's obvious that he was a man of fervor and intensity, boldness, courageousness, so much so that in the end, it cost him his life. He was led away and he was imprisoned and he was executed. Um, but we, we do know this, that Christ saw in him a man who would be committed to God's will and to making disciples. John, known as the brother of James, was known as the apostle of love. And he's an apostle that we've recently grown more familiar with in our care group study because we've been going through the epistle of First John. He also wrote the gospel account of John as well as the book of Revelation. And oftentimes in First John and in the gospel of John, we see his tender affection for God's people. And without question, we see his love for the Lord Jesus Christ permeate through his writing. The love and loyalty of John is something that Jesus recognized help him be a strong disciple maker. This is another way, or really a takeaway for our church, I believe as well, as we consider the reality of what the Lord saw in the diversity of this men, these men, that it was going to provide them with leverage and connections with people. And I think that we are very blessed as a church we're a very diverse church, and it's something that we need to steward well. God has provided us leverage to make connections and to disciple a number of people because of our diversity. Some of that is related to our ethnicity and our cultural background. Some of it is related to our education and, and, and to our employment, our careers, it allows us to make connections. Some of it's associated with personal interests and hobbies that we have. Some of it's related to the ages and makeup of our families or even in our singleness, all of which is an opportunity for us to make connections and disciple people and, and have the opportunity to initiate discipleship relationships that would be impossible if we were all the same. How boring would that be? We're all the same too. Just be boring. It's, it's 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 encouraging. This is leverage. We can we can use this as leverage to make connections. We can use our youth. We can use our age. We can use our experiences in school. We can use homeschooling as an opportunity to, to connect with other people who homeschool. We, there's so many things that our, our church exists or, or that, that are part of our church that provide us with leverage. When the Lord pursued you, when he called you to himself to follow him, he, he saw, he sees something in us. He does. He created us. He knows that just like the disciples that he called, that there are strengths and there are weaknesses. He knows us, every detail. And we can recognize the fact that we can, we, in conjunction with our, our discipleship and growing and understanding that we can use our passions, we can use our, our personalities, we can use the strengths that God has given us to leverage them into discipleship relationships for his glory. We can, can. First Peter 4.10 affirms as each one has received a special gift let us employ it as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I'm not camping out on a psychological aspect like it's, oh, it's, a, it's about personality or it's about your hobbies or it's about anything. I'm talking about using those things as, as a way to reach out and make connections. Does that make sense? Are you with me on that? I'm not... But but there's also this in 1 Peter 4.10 that lets us know that each person has received a special gift. And we're to employ it as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God has given you a gift and that you can use your gift that he's given you to disciple someone. To help them grow in that respect. It'll be a strength that you have and you can use it. Find it. Use it. Pursue people. Make connections with it. We need to. We need to. In verses 16 and 19, we see that Jesus pursues his disciples 
And so shall we if we're going to make disciples. The second defining action comes in verse 17. Jesus calls them to discipleship. Look at verse, verse 17. The Lord says to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Here we see the command of Christ's call. And then it's followed by the goal of Christ's call. Let's start with the command. I'm calling this a command because it's translated with imperatival force, but in the Greek, it's actually two adverbs. The first meaning come, and the second meaning fall behind. This is more like a military expression that summons a soldier to fall into rank. And let me just say this about the Lord taking this approach to his disciples. This was very, very uncommon Jesus' day. He was a different kind of leader and a different kind of rabbi. As one source shared, there are no rabbinical stories analogous to the calling of the disciples. For rabbis did not consummate the teacher-student relationship by summons, follow me. Unlike the decisive call that comes from Jesus, entry into a rabbinical school depended on the initiative of the aspiring student, not the call of a, of a rabbi. Personal prominence that Jesus assumes in the call of the four fishermen is highly unusual in Jewish tradition as a whole. Chief allegiance of rabbinic rabbinic students was to the Torah rather than to a particular rabbi. In the Old Testament, the idea of following God is rare, if not absent. Neither Moses, nor kings, nor the various men of God, nor the prophets call people as a rule to follow them. So here Jesus shows up on the scene. It's just like diametrically opposed to what's taking place in the place. This is radical. And he's out there and he's saying, he's saying, follow me. Come, you follow me. And this call is not rooted in the Torah, as we just heard. It's not based on experiences that we see in the Old Testament. The disciples didn't have to do something in order to be qualified as followers. They didn't have to know specific things about the Torah. They didn't have to take a theological exam. They were given one thing to do, one and one thing only, and that was to follow him. Follow him. And our Christian walks can be summarized with one simple expression. We need to follow Jesus. If we follow Jesus, we will be faithful and we will be fruitful in our lives. All that the disciples needed to learn and do could only be learned and done as they followed Jesus. And one commentator shared, only as Jesus is followed can he be known posted that on my Facebook. I love that expression. But as it relates to our context and making disciples, if I can just expand on it, only as Jesus is followed will we be effective in our disciple making. All the other intrinsic uh, actions of being a disciple maker flow out of following Christ. This will be more easily understood as we shift gears now to the goal of Christ's call in our passage. Look at the middle of verse 17. They got the summons to follow him, and then then comes a conjunction, and I will make you fishers of men. And fishing, like many other trades, requires basic knowledge to be successful. Few, if any, can just go out and learn to fish on their own. You need at least some level of instruction. It's not a simple thing to do. There's some things that you have to understand, right? You need a pole, okay? There's fishing line. There's hooks. There's, There's bait and tackle. There's techniques as it relates to casting. All these things. Most importantly, you need fish and water, okay, in order to go fishing. It's a true story. When my twin brother and I were little, he and a couple friends of ours, we decided that we were going to go fishing in a little body of water that was just down the road from our house, about a mile and a half. And they grabbed their father's fishing poles, I assume, out of the, the, the garage. And we grabbed, I think, our older brothers, without asking, I'm sure. And we decided that we were going to go down and we were going to fish. And we were really excited. We were going down there and you know, I think we saw a little bit of 
what our older brother Paul had done, and so the, the, the hooks might have even already been on the poles for some of us. But we went down, and there was this rock quarry that was down the road from our house where they would go and they would scoop out this gravel, and some of it was like limey-type rock. And there was this water filled in this massive area where they would scoop this stuff out, and then when the rain would collect and the runoff, it would come down into the quarry, and it would all collect there, and it was this big, big body of water. And of course, there were like these skull and crossbone signs that said do not swim in it because they didn't want the liability of that. But we got our poles set and we cast it out in there and we were excited, you know, night crawlers on the end of the pole and we sat and we waited. And we waited. And we waited. We're on our way down, you know, we're talking about, oh, I'm going to catch a fish. My, my fish is going to be this big, you know, you're just like little kids. You're just like, it's going to be, I can't wait to see the size of the fish I catch. And here we are just sitting there. And it ended up being a pretty di- disappointing day. Pretty disappointing day. Later, we would come to find out that there was a high acidic concentration that was even in that water. That's why they didn't want you to swim in it. And there was nothing living in that water. Okay? <laughs> so it was impossible to catch any fish. So I learned something very important that day. There is a fundamental knowledge that you must possess in order to have any success in catching fish. Jesus knew that these four men understood this, and he uses this play on words. And within this expression, it implies that they'll learn from Jesus on how to become fishers of men. And that is what literally it says in the Greek, by the way. I shall make you become fishers of men. Jesus is basically saying, you guys physically know how to catch and clean fish? Spiritually, I am going to show you how to catch and clean, how to catch and disciple men. And this is the goal of Christ's call. To be a spiritual fisherman is to be a disciple maker, and it requires four ongoing commitments that are recorded in your outline. And these, I hope, should sound somewhat familiar to you. Four ongoing commitments to fulfill Christ's call as a disciple maker. The goal of Christ's call to discipleship is that each person's life in the church would reflect these four commitments. First, you and I must follow Christ. Question for you. Who is going to be used in your life to make you the most effective disciple maker that you can possibly be? I can tell you right now, it's not me. It's not a pastor. It's not the elders. It's not a care group leader. It's it's not anyone else. There's one specific person that's going to make you the most I'm talking about that, and I want to emphasize that. The most effective disciple maker that you can possibly be, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Will God use other people? Of course. Give you a sigh of relief. But even as God uses other people, their spiritual influence and impact on our life will will come to bear Only as they follow Christ, only as they're following Christ, can they influence our lives as a disciple maker. We must follow him. We must follow him. Second, you and I must learn from Christ, just as it implies in our passage. We must learn from him to become the spiritual fisherman that he would have us be. You must take time to study him. You know, this was a rebuke. I'll just, confessions of a pastor. I, it was a rebuke to my own heart. Even in my study this week, as I considered the reality, I, and I've read on discipleship and, um, you know, have studied the word and have been discipled through the word. But the one thing that rebuked me the most and became evident that God just shined a spotlight on here. And I'm so grateful. As painful as it was, I'm so grateful that I have not looked to Christ as my supreme example in discipleship. Like, then I'm not studying the person and the work of Christ and how he did it. 
And that, my friends, unlocks the door to our discipleship. We have to look to him. And I'm so grateful. I was just rejoicing. I was praising God. And I know many of you are too as we, we've entered into this, this time to study the gospel of Mark. And will you and I allow the disciple-making expertise of Jesus to bless us as we study Mark together? And how will this happen? What I would like to call discipleship deposits. We must be committed to regular discipleship deposits into our spiritual accounts if we're going to learn from Jesus. Just like your savings account at the bank, right? We deposit, right? We make deposits in order for it to grow. And that working in conjunction with the interest rate will allow it to grow, right? We make deposits and it grows. And there's an interest rate. We're willing it to be a good one, right? And it's going to grow. But I have a question for you, friend. Can we, can we expect that account to grow in great measure? If we're not making large deposits into it, can we expect expect it to grow great in great measure? No, it'll still grow. There's still an interest rate, whatever it might be, two percent, two percent, whatever it might be, is it's going to help it. And that's what is a picture of going in, in our Christian walks. The Spirit is perfecting us. The Spirit of God that resides within is like a steady interest rate in our life. There needs to be large deposits uh, and study in the Word. We, we need to be making those deposits into our account, deposits in deep, rich, focus times in prayer. Deposits come in, in, in many different ways. Deposits in serving others. It's there, but it has to be prioritized. It has to be prioritized, and it comes at a very high cost. There's time, effort, commitment, discipline, and I'm so grateful. Next week, Francis is going to have the opportunity to teach us on the high cost of discipleship. Well, there's a third ongoing commitment, and it's this. You and I must lead others for Christ. What does this look like practically? First and foremost, just like Christ, we lead others by our example. And we've talked about being a follower and a learner of Christ, which basically, we've heard this in the past too, is the definition of a disciple, a follower and a learner, right? That's what it means to be a disciple. Yet the goal of Christ called a discipleship isn't just that we would be disciples, it's that we would be disciple makers. And this translates into the ongoing commitment of leading others. How do we lead others? By being the most faithful follower and learner that we can be. That's, that's, that, that's what we want to be. That's how we lead others. And yes, is there something intrinsic about leadership as well? There is what leaders do they they take initiative they take initiative and if we're going to be a disciple maker we have to take initiative as well we have to make plans and we have to um uh, create the opportunities around us to to make those deposits into the lives of other people that's how we lead them and and that just doesn't happen on its own. You know, I wish I wish it was it, it was just that easy that we just snapped our fingers like that, but it's not. It's not. It takes it takes work. It does it takes investment. But let me just say there's joy that comes with it. Oh, there's tremendous joy as 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 we get to lead others and make those deposits in their life. There's joy that accompanies it. And I'm sure that we've all been around those people 
Or you've, and I've even been one of those people. So I'm, but I'm saying, like, if you know somebody who's just, they're just like, oh, it's just so hard, and I'm so tired, and this is, or there's, there's depression, or there's despondency, and I just don't feel good, and it's just, oh, it's just, it's hard. You know, and I, I, this has been my experience. A lot of times, in, in talking with people who are, who are going through that experience, and you start asking them about their time in the Word, start talking, you know, in a discipleship context as you try to lead them in their understanding. Like, are, yeah, are you? But how? How are you? Are you able? Are you praying? And what what your commitment looks like? And it becomes evident that sometimes it's not taking place. That there aren't deposits, right? And so again, should we should we expect that there's going to be um, joy? Should we? expect that there's going to be um, whoever serves as a servant, the strength that he supplies is rely upon him spiritually? Probably not. Probably not. So being an effective leader means being strategic in that regard. We need to have the opportunities to, to help others help others. You and I must follow Christ. We must learn from Christ. We must lead others to Christ. And the fourth commitment to fulfill Christ's call and our call to, uh, to fulfill Christ's goal and our call to discipleship, you and I must teach others for Christ. And this is one of the rich blessings of discipleship is that we get to share what we learn about Christ and from Christ with others. What did Jesus teach his disciples? A brief overview of Mark's gospel account reveals plenty that we'll get a study in the coming Sundays. He taught them about how to evangelize as he worked through the parable of the soils in Mark chapter 5, excuse me, 4. Mark chapter 5, he taught them how to minister with compassion as he healed people like the Gerasene demoniac and Jairus' daughter. He taught them how to trust God and to serve others through the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6. Remember? He told them to circle them all up and he, he, he instructed them on how to serve them. He taught them good theology about God as well as the defilement of the human heart in Mark 7. He regularly taught them about who he was like in Mark chapter 8. He taught them about real life issues such as divorce, Mark chapter 10. And if we begin just to even look outside of the gospel accounts, there's all these other things that the Lord Jesus Christ brings to, that, that are so practical for our lives. He, he, in Matthew 6, he teaches us how to pray. He, he teaches us about anxiety. He teaches us about paying our taxes. He teaches us about judging others, on fasting, on repentance, eschatology, and on and on and on the list goes. And the Lord covers so much of the details of our lives. And what is not found in the gospel accounts, nine times out of ten, is covered somewhere in the New Testament epistles, the wisdom of Proverbs. And the point is that we have been given everything that we need to be disciple makers through the sufficiency of Scripture. We have. It's, it's, it's right there for the taking. And if I can revert back to the previous illustration that I shared moments ago about discipleship deposits, you need to be able to make a withdrawal. You need to be able to make a withdrawal. What do I mean? You have to have something that you have learned in order to teach others. There's something we have to be able to make a withdrawal so that we can deposit that into the life of someone else. I was talking about this with, with my wife, Victoria, as we were just even considering um, care group. Uh, we, we should make it a goal to encourage and, and bless others about what God has taught us in 1 John. That, sh that should be a goal. And bring that blessing to bear on another care group member's life. You know, that's part of the, the joy. Sometimes you, you show up and God really instructed me. He taught me about this aspect, deceptive nature in my heart, even how I was just walking in darkness, and God really revealed that, and you, you, you share that with somebody. And another brother and sister, they're like, oh, yeah, me too. And then this brother or sister over there, they, they didn't see it. 
And so they're blessed, but they saw something else, right? And they're able to, to share and bring that to bear on your life. That if we're not intentional, we can show up spiritually empty-handed, right? And, and that's all of us. Yeah, now are there going to be weeks where, yeah, it was such a pressed week, I didn't get to the study, and you're going to go and you're going to be fed by your other brothers and sisters in care group. That's a tremendous blessing, and those times are going to happen. Yet at the same time, we want to make it a goal that we have deposits to, to bring and, and to share with the, the lives of those that we're engaged in discipleship relationships. And I'm convinced of the ministry. It, it is a discipleship ministry. And it is and can and should be effective, right? But it, it, it involves us reaching a little bit to become the teachers that we need to be. Well, what would the disciples' response to Jesus' pursuit and, and call to discipleship be? There's a third defining action within Christ's call to discipleship. The disciples respond obediently. Look at verse 18. And verse 20, verse 18 says, Immediately Simon Peter and Andrew left their nets and followed him. Verse 20, Immediately he called them, and they, James and John, left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they went away to follow. I want to I provide the context here so that we see it with with clarity, because this is not what some believe a cold call uh, evangelistic effort by Jesus and them hearing him for the very first time. And that's why I drew special attention to the fact that what we read in John chapter 1 and verses 35 to 40, that we saw that, that Simon, or excuse me, his brother, Andrew, was a disciple of John the Baptist, right? Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. He was one of the two men that followed Jesus and got a chance to learn from him, right? And so had an exposure and may have even been there for the baptism where after the spirit descended and the voice was heard, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And they were excited that the Messiah had showed up. Go back to Mark chapter one. And as you look in your Bible, question for you, we need to understand this chronology a little bit. What happens immediately after the baptism in all three synoptic gospel accounts? What happens next? The Lord's led into the wilderness, right, to be tempted. For how long? 40 days, right? And according to my football math, um, 6 times 7 is 42, so seven days in a week. So this was, he was out in the wilderness by himself being tempted for six days. So here we had the Messiah who had showed up on the scene. He got baptized, but then now he's going out into the wilderness. So a month and a half passes in time. And we don't even know how much time elapsed after the temptation in the wilderness before Jesus started his preaching ministry. Something tells me from the Gospel of Mark, and because he uses the word immediately, that he didn't waste a whole lot of time. He got ready to go out. And so in verses uh, 14 and 15 that we learned last week, he's going out and he's preaching the Gospel. And all of a sudden, he's going along the Sea of Galilee, and these guys are in their boats, and who do they see preaching the gospel? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he says what? He says, follow me. Follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And contrary to what has been taught or been misunderstood, I believe by, by some, this was not just a cold call response. They were familiar. Jesus, um, and after John the Baptist's arrest and because of what transpired, everything starts to escalate, right? There, there's buzz about Jesus going on. And even as we move down into the, to, uh, chapter 1, verse 28, it even says that all the people, I mean, they were talking. This is a big deal now to all the Jewish people. They were talking. So the men that Jesus called to himself Right? This is especially these four men right here. There was some familiarity. It wasn't just a cold call. But we can appreciate their response. 
it says, what did they do? They immediately, they immediately stopped. You know what they recognized? The time is now. <laughs> the message is him. The time is now. It's go time. If I can put in a discipleship phrase, it's grow time. And they saw that they needed to follow the Lord Jesus Christ so that they could grow and become what he would have them be, effective disciples. We need to see it. Oswald Chambers wrote this lengthy quote, and I want to use it as an opportunity to conclude our service by sharing it with you because it's important to see. It's called the crown of discipleship. The crown of John's discipleship was that his disciples became the disciples of Jesus. And he quotes John 137, which says, And the two disciples heard him, Jesus, speak, and they followed Jesus. End quote. If in the final issue the souls of those I have taught do not turn to Jesus when we see him, when they see him, I have been a traitor. In the New Testament, it's never the personality of the preacher that counts. What counts is whether he knows how to direct those who come to him to Jesus. If a man preaches on the grounds of his personality, he's apt to be a detractor from Jesus. The only reason for presenting Jesus is that he is all in all to me, absolutely. Many of us know devotedness to a creed, to a phase of evangelical truth. Very few know anything about personal devotion to Jesus. The call to discipleship comes mysteriously as being born from above. Once a man hears it, it profoundly alters everything. It is like the call of the sea, the call of the mountains. Not everyone hears these calls, only those who have the nature of the sea or the mountains. And then only if they pay attention to the call. To hear the call of God to discipleship necessitates education and understanding and discernment. Never be afraid of a thing that is vague. The biggest things in life are vague as far as expression goes, but they are realities. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Not just go out and save souls, but go and make disciples. He says this, it's comparatively easy to proclaim salvation from sin. But Jesus comes and says, what about you? If you would be my disciple, deny yourself, take up that cross daily, and follow me. It has very little to do with eternal salvation. It has everything to do with our temporal value to God and Christ. And most of us do not care anything about our temporal value to God. All we are concerned about is being saved from hell and put right about heaven. And there is something so infinitely grander than that. And Jesus Christ gives us a marvelous chance of giving up a right to ourselves to him in order that we might become the devoted bond slaves of the one who saves us so supernaturally. Over the last couple Sundays, the Lord Jesus Christ has been doing something for us. We've been given at the end of his ministry and the disciples were summoned to do what? Go out and fulfill the great commission. And the imperative and the command within that as we progress in evangelism and discipleship, it's in that passage that's listed down there, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. The imperative in that passage is to make disciples. And you know what the Lord Jesus Christ is graciously doing at the beginning of his ministry? He's leading by example yet again. He is making disciples. He is the commission. He is the mission. And then co with, he brings us along with that mission. How does it begin? He preaches the gospel. And there is a gospel proclamation that's important because a heart must be born again in order to make disciples. We rely upon the grace of God and I don't want this be man-centered or interpreted in any way, but there is a responsibility on our part in our obedience as we trust in Christ, as we've been given that enabling grace to, to, to do it. To do it. I'm so grateful that we have a, a Lord who shows us what that process looks like. 
let's be encouraged and let's be prayerful that through our study of Mark that we'll gain a stronger grasp on personal disciple making as we look to Christ. May we all continue to grow in our understanding of the call to discipleship as Jesus makes each one of us, each one of us, fishers of men. Amen and amen. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, we thank you for the reality that you sent your son who has modeled everything for us, who serves as our Lord, as our Savior, and as our great example. And we pray as we hear these words that some of us, as we consider the reality of our lives, we just, we're so weak. And I confess it too. I was rebuked. Yet I'm also very grateful that in in your grace that you've made this provision that we can look to the Lord Jesus Christ to see how he effectively disciple people and that we can learn from that and that we would implement it and that we would truly be followers and learners so that we could be leaders and teachers. And we have the greatest teacher that this world has ever known in the Lord. And we celebrate that. And I pray that you would Ignite within our hearts as a church family a vigor and a desire and a ganas to to fulfill the commission, to actively pursue, actively make disciples for your glory, for your namesake. And we'll have to lean heavily upon you every step of the way. For those of us who feel like we've fallen short in so many different ways, can we be encouraged, Father, this day that you, you, every day is another opportunity. Give us a chance to make deposits. By your grace and in your goodness, we'll do so. We just pray that you'll help us. We plead for it. And though on this side of the cross, we often don't see the the value that you have placed upon us and placed upon our lives in discipleship, I pray that as we continue to study that we would be encouraged by that, that we were bought at the highest price, the precious blood of your son. And it wasn't just so that we could be saved. It was so that we could be saved with purpose and that we could do the very thing that you've called and summoned us to do. And that is to make, your, make disciples, and to see the church grow so that you can be exalted in the world in which we live. And there are so many blessings that come with it. We thank you for each and every one of them. We look forward to seeing how you continue to grow us into the men and the women of God that you've called us to be. Thanking you in the precious name of your son. Amen.